today uh, we are wrapping up our sermon series called Women in the Bible. Um, it's been a, a great time going through this, and I think it's been a learning experience for me as well. Uh, you know, as a, someone who gives messages, you know, I, I never feel like any of them are good enough. I always work until they're, they're okay, they're good enough to deliver. But uh, in hindsight, there's always things that I look back on and I wish I did differently. And, and throughout this, this has been informative for me as well. Uh, there have been uh, times in which uh, people have given me feedback personally, and it's been really helpful as well. And I think I want to extend the invitation in general, uh, and I think I can speak for Phil on this as well. But if you ever have any thoughts or reactions or feedback toward anything you hear in a sermon, uh, we're always happy to receive that and to learn uh, because we are uh, growing as well and we're in process as well. Well, anyways, uh, there are several reasons why we started this sermon series, and Alice touched on this a little bit earlier, but one of the reasons is because our church has been processing uh, and exploring uh, what is the role of women in uh, Grace Life Church. Uh, what levels of leadership should they have, and um, how can they be serving in our church? And uh, in one sense, uh, what we are doing isn't totally new, you know, for a long time, long, you know, in, in our church's history, long before I, even I was here, uh, we've had female pastors on staff, and uh, we've had women preach on Sundays. So these things have happened, uh, and we've had uh, Christy serving on the leadership team for much of our church's history. But with that said, we've never really clarified publicly where we stood on things. And so this, op so the church has been thinking about these things, and our leadership team has been, uh, you know, even they would say they weren't too sure where they stood on specific issues over the years. But more recently, our ch the church leadership team, uh, they were having intentional conversations about the topic, and they became convinced that women should be able to serve in all levels of our church's leadership. And so uh, this is, but we recognize that, uh, sorry, they recognize that uh, uh, not everyone in our church is there. And so uh, one of the purposes of the sermon series is to sort of lay out some of the groundwork that explains why they believe what they believe. Anyways, uh, many of the sermons don't talk about uh, female leaders at all. Uh, they talk about different aspects of the female experience, but this one will. So I want to just give a little bit of a caveat and I also want to say, if you find yourself disagreeing uh, with any of the messages in this sermon series, and also including this one, that's totally okay. You know, uh, the leadership team, as well as me, we're happy to have conversations about these sort of things and to talk things with you. And if you have thoughts to share, we'd love to listen as well. But uh, today we're talking about Romans 16, and um, specifically the women in Romans 16. So it's a very broad category for most of our uh, sermon series, we were talking about individual women, uh, but today we're talking about a group of women because many of these women, they, have, they don't have much airtime in the Bible, so we're just sort of lumping them together. Now, Romans 16 is the last chapter of the book of Romans, and it was written by Paul in the mid-50s, about 20 years, 25 years after Jesus died and rose again, and as is common in a lot of Paul's letters, Paul uh, commands, or he asks his readers to greet a bunch of people, okay? It's like his way of doing shout-outs. Shout-out to so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. Uh, but what's sort of notable about Romans 16 is that this shout-out section is really long, and many of the people in this list, uh, is in, in, in particular, some of the most prominent people in this list are women. 
And so I think this chapter gives us a glimpse of how Paul views ministry in general, and then specifically how Paul views women in ministry. And so that's what we'll be talking about. How does Paul view ministry in general, and then specifically how does Paul view women in ministry? So we're going to read through, not the whole chapter, Romans 16, but uh, we're going to read through Romans 16, 1 through 16, and then we'll comment on a, a few things, all right? So let's read this together. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Saint Creer. I ask you to receive her. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of His people, and to give her any help she may need for, from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet is also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ... I forgot to change the slide, sorry. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those uh, who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, these women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who, woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogulus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. All right, so there's a lot of names, okay? There are actually 29 specific individuals mentioned here. Not all of them, their names. Sometimes it's like, and his sister, or and his mother, or whatever. But there's 29 specific individuals, and he's sometimes, with these individuals, he says, and their, their household, or and their church, or something like that. And so I want to say a quick word just about the sheer number of people that he's greeting, or he's asking people to greet, before we talk about the women specifically. Because here's the thing. You know, our modern church often has a very individualistic approach to Christianity, okay, to the Christian faith. We say Jesus is our personal savior. We make a personal decision to follow Jesus. And sometimes we don't share too much about our personal spiritual life because, you know, our spiritual life is just a me and God thing. You know, we do things our own way and we sort of respect people's boundaries. And honestly, there's some healthy aspects to that, you know, we do want to allow for creative expression, and we value that we're all unique, and just because you do want some things one way doesn't mean I do some things one way. So there's certain things, you know, that are healthy um, about that. Um, and also, you know, what we do sometimes is we, not only do we grow individually by ourselves, but we also emphasize doing the mission of God, doing the work of God by ourselves as well. So we do service alone, we do generosity alone, we do evangelism alone, and I'm reminded of uh, Mr. Incredible from The Incredibles, and he, remember, he, uh, 
what's the guy's name? The little kid who later becomes the villain. He comes up to him and wants to work with him, and he goes, I work alone, you know? So, um, but Paul doesn't work alone. And this chapter, uh, I think, reveals that. The fact that he asks this church to greet 29 different people shows just how much of a spirit of collaboration he has, just how dependent he was on so many people from all backgrounds. Throughout his ministry, and you see this in the book of Acts, you see this throughout Paul's letters, Paul is constantly, continually partnering with people to do the work of ministry. Um, one way to think about, the, about it is this. The ministry partnerships that he, that he has, it's not like they supplement his personal ministry. They are his whole ministry. All of his ministry was done with ministry partners. We always say he's traveling to here with so-and-so, and he's asking so-and-so to deliver stuff to over there, and he's commanding so-and-so to work with so-and-so and to bring so-and-so to him. And so there's, Paul's continually doing stuff like that. And I think it's a, just a great reminder that the Christian life isn't meant to be lived alone. From our spiritual nourishment to our spiritual exercise, it's all meant to be done in partnership with others in the context of community. You know, and I would suggest sometimes we struggle to do things in the Christian life because we lack Christian community in those areas. And so I would suggest, you know, if you are, for example, if you're struggling to read the Bible, I would encourage you, find someone and read the Bible with that person. If you're struggling to uh, serve the poor, I would suggest find someone and serve the poor with that person. If you're struggling to do evangelism personally, then find someone and do evangelism with that person. The Christian life, I, I think so much of the difficulties in our spiritual lives exist because we have this mentality, I need to do this by myself, and I'm struggling by myself. I don't want to share that I'm struggling with other people, or I don't want to assume people want to do this with me, so I'm just doing this thing by myself. But uh, I think the biblical, the biblical record we have is of Christians doing things with one another. All right, so that's just a, a very practical thing. And, and I'll add this as well. If you're not in a community group, I would strongly encourage you to get plugged into a community group. That's one of the best ways to grow. Um, many of the things that we are doing, trying to do in our spiritual life, happen in the context of a community group. So it's like a natural system where that, that happens. Anyways, let's keep going. Let's talk about the women. All right. Um, uh, okay. Here's the list of everyone in this chapter, and I have the, the women listed in yellow. All right, so there's 29 individuals. Ten of them are women, and this is somewhat surprising given the context for century for a few reasons, all right? You see, Paul lived in an age that was much more culturally patriarchal than today at least today in modern America. You know, typically, religious leaders were men of all faiths. Okay, religious leaders were men, and typically, they primarily worked for men. They talked to men, and they discipled their own men. They traveled with men. So that's, that's how ministry in all religious faiths works most of the time. And that's why Jesus had 12 male disciples. Um, it was just, it's logistically a lot more complicated if you were traveling around and, and some of your followers are women. How are you going to room together? Or how are you going to live together? And so there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of uh, complications that arise when you put women in the mix. That's just how the culture was. And so it's interesting that Paul has so many female 
who he calls co-workers, female co-workers, and he doesn't feel the need to hide that. So that's fascinating, okay? But also, it's not just that he includes women, but it's surprising to read the sorts of things that he says about many of these women. And it strongly suggests that he views these women as leaders in their own context, in their own ministries, in their own right. So we're going to go over just three of these women in particular. All right. So first off, there's Phoebe. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul calls Phoebe a diakonos. Some translations say servant. Some say deacon. All right. So Phoebe is a diakonos. Now this word, before the New Testament was around, this word primarily meant servant. That's, that's what it meant. Okay. A literal servant, like someone who serves someone else, usually employed by that person. All right. But in the New Testament, uh, there are actually three different ways this word is used. One is a literal servant. Okay, so like Jairus had a servant. But another way that's used is Paul uses this term sort of broadly to describe anybody in ministry. And sometimes it's translated minister when that happens. And, uh, and then sometimes it's used in the context of deacon. So later this becomes an office of deacon, which sounds like the word diakonos. Okay, so who is Phoebe then? What, kind of, how, what description, what, how do we translate this word, diakonos? Is she a deacon or a minister or a literal servant? Well, I, I think there's a bunch of things going on. I think this is what's happening, all right? So in Matthew 23, uh, 8 through 11, Jesus says this, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, and that's where diakonos. So Jesus says similar things all throughout the Gospels. This idea that the first shall be last, last shall be first, the greatest of you shall be the servant of all. All these lines, what he's intentionally saying is that if you want to be a leader in the church, if you want to have influence in the church, then above all, you need humility, you need a heart of service. You need to be serving people. And so I think what Paul does is he takes this idea and he, and, and, and he follows in Jesus' footsteps and he decides he's going to call leaders in the church servants. All right? So Paul uses this word diakonos frequently to describe himself. He often calls himself a servant. He also uses this to describe Jesus at one point. He uses this word to describe people like Apollos and Timothy and Phoebe. And I think what he's doing, he's, in, he's intentionally using this word that is associated with lowliness to describe people with high positions of authority in the church. This is a, a pattern that Paul often employs throughout the Bible. All right, so uh, it's debated whether Phoebe has the literal office of deacon because many of the people that Paul uses this term, servant or diakonos on, it doesn't seem like they have the office of deacon. Uh, and also, some scholars, they debate really when this office of deacon even came about. Um, it seems like by the time 1 Timothy was written, Paul's talking about an office of deacon, but in the 50s, which is about 10 years prior, when um, Romans was written, it's not clear whether the church even was developed enough and structured enough to have the office of deacon. And so we don't really know whether Phoebe was an official deacon or not, but I think either way, it doesn't seem like she was a literal servant because 
Paul calls her a benefactor, which means she has a lot of money, all right? So it, it, it probably means Paul saw her as a leader in the church. Phoebe, whether or not she had the church office of deacon, certainly had a leadership role, okay? So anyways, let's read Romans 16, 1 through 2, talking about Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancreate. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So what does this mean that Paul is saying that the church should receive her? Well, most biblical scholars on the same page, they believe that Phoebe was Paul's messenger in delivering the letter to the Romans to the church in Rome. So, so here's the thing about messengers in the first century, okay? Messengers, they, they, weren't, they didn't just drop off mail in, in uh, mailboxes, okay? Messengers were often entrusted with being the representative of the writer of the letter. And most often, the messengers, they would verbally read the whole letter, like in a church gathering or something, and they would uh, be entrusted with the responsibility of clarifying the intent or the meaning of the letter when questions would arise. All right, so that said, if that's true, then that says a thing or two about the way Paul views Phoebe. It shows that Paul views Phoebe in a very extraordinary light. He entrusts her with his ability to not just deliver a letter, but to uh, read the letter and to explain the letter to the hearers. You know, check out this quote. This is from the New Testament scholar Michael Bird, and he's talking about the significance of Phoebe being the, the, the letter, the messenger, okay? This is Romans, Paul's attempt to potentially, uh, to prevent a potentially fra fractured cluster of house churches in Rome from dividing over debates about the Jewish law. This is Paul's effort to return to Jerusalem with all the Gentile churches behind him. This is Paul's one chance to garner support from the Roman churches for a mission to Spain. This is Romans, his greater letter essay, the most influential letter in the history of Western thought, and the singularly greatest piece of Christian theology. Now, if Paul was opposed to women teaching men anytime and anywhere, why on earth would he send a woman like Phoebe to deliver this vitally important letter and to be his personal representative in Rome? Why not Timothy, Titus, or any other dude? So what Michael Bird is saying is this is a pretty significant responsibility that is given Phoebe, and so if Paul had this mentality that he was opposed to women teaching men, why would he send Phoebe? And why would he send her in such a way that feels normal, like without controversy? A woman who has leadership in the church, uh, I mean, so, so Phoebe, it seems like, is a woman who has leadership in the church. It seems like she has authority in the church. It seems like she's been entrusted not just by Paul, but by her hearers in Rome, to deliver and interpret this letter, I think that shows this. Paul thinks of Phoebe pretty highly, okay? So we're going to move on. We can talk about Phoebe forever. There's tons of articles you can look up. But next, let's go to Priscilla. So person number two is Priscilla. There's a lot of things to know about Priscilla, but I think one of the best ways to describe her is that she's a church planter. Now, this term, church planter, wasn't around in New Testament times. But if you look at who she is and what she did, I think that's the best way to describe her. So let's reread Romans 16, 3 to 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, that risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. All right, so Priscilla and Aquila, they're a, a wife and husband duo. They appear 
six times in the New Testament, and the majority of the times, what's interesting is Priscilla appears first. And that's unusual in New Testament times. Usually you list the husband first. So the fact that Priscilla is listed first shows that she probably had a very prominent, maybe more prominent role in their ministry. Another thing to know is back then, uh, people in these greeting sections, oftentimes you list people in order of prominence. All right, so the first person that was listed was Phoebe because she was the messenger. Paul says, greet Phoebe. But then Paul lists a bunch of names, and Priscilla and Aquila come first, which shows that probably these were very prominent individuals. All right? So we don't know a whole lot about Priscilla and Aquila, but from the six places they show up in the Bible, we can sort of construct who they were and what they did. So we first meet Priscilla and Aquila in the city of Corinth. Uh, they meet with Paul, and they uh, help Paul start the church in Corinth. And they do this for a year and a half. And then they join Paul on a missionary journey. They go to Ephesus, and they help start a church. It's a brand-new church in Ephesus. And then Paul leaves Ephesus, and it says that he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus. And it's not explicit, but I think it's implied that Priscilla and Aquila are the leaders of the church in Ephesus when Paul leaves Ephesus. Okay, and then uh, during that time, uh, they're doing ministry in Ephesus. Apollos is a guy who comes in. He's this new kid on the block. He's preaching. And Priscilla and Aquila, they hear Apollos. They, they take him aside privately. They correct his teaching. And then it shows that they have the ability, or at least the authority, to teach or instruct someone like Apollos, who's also a teacher. And then later, we don't know when, but by the time this letter was written, they moved to Rome, where it seems like they were hosting a church in their own home. All right, so so here's the picture of, uh, and also there's this line. We don't really know what happened, but Paul has this line about how all the churches, how they risk their lives, and all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So that seems pretty significant. They were pretty courageous. They did something amazing, and everybody's indebted to them. All right, all the churches of the Gentiles. That's that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of churches. So to summarize, Priscilla and Aquila, they were key leaders in the planting of three different churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, and in Rome. And we have evidence that they teach teachers, that they host churches in their homes, and that they risk their lives, and everybody in the Gentile world is indebted to them. All right, so that's a lot of statements for Priscilla and Aquila, and we don't really know what title they held, what office they held, but it seems like they were clearly leaders in the church, all right? So that's number two, Priscilla. Let's talk about number three, which is Junia the Apostle. All right, let's skip down to Romans 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. <coughs> All right, so we don't, actually don't know a whole lot about Junia. This is the only place she appears in the whole Bible. But this one verse has been one of the most controversial verses in the whole New Testament. <coughs> because, at first glance it seems like she's an apostle, and, um, and she's a woman. So for most of church history, it was sort of accepted that Junia was a woman who was an apostle, and then more recently, a lot of people, they say, oh, a woman, I don't know if a woman can be an apostle. That, that means she would have a lot of authority, and I don't know if women can have so much authority in the church. And so there's been attempts to translate this in different ways. Okay, so uh, some translators... They've asserted that maybe this is uh, 
uh, not Junia, but Junius, it's sort of a, a mistype, uh, you know, mistranslation. Junius would be a male name. So there are some translations that actually translate this as Junius. And then more recently, though, that sort of fell out of fashion. There's not as much consensus that that can be a thing. Most of the early church fathers recognized this was a woman. And so uh, an alternative method was to translate this whole sentence a little bit differently. It's not mistranslating because this is syntactically, you know, it's possible. But the NIV, for example, says that Andronicus and Junia are outstanding among the apostles, which makes it seem like she was among the apostles. But the ESV, for example, says they are well known to the apostles, which makes it seem like here's a group of apostles, here's Andronicus and Junia, and these people like these people, all right? So that's what it seems like. And the reason why people are trying to translate this in different ways is because apostles have a tremendous amount of church authority. Not everyone, even very faithful, dedicated leaders in the church, not, not everyone can be an apostle. And so some translators say it, it can't make sense that a woman in the early church would have so much church authority. However, I think, and you can investigate this yourself, this can be a long, this whole book's written about this, but I believe the biblical evidence as well as the testament of church history teach that Andronicus and Junia were both apostles in the early church. All right, so, um, so we have these three individuals, right? We have Phoebe, the deacon, or the servant leader, Priscilla, the church planter, and Junia, the apostle. And I think it begs the question, if Paul seems to be supportive of women doing these things or having these roles, then what is he opposed to women doing? If he is okay with women doing all these things, then why does it seem like there are a few places where he seems to draw lines around what women can do? Now, um, the hot-button issue of today is, is this. Can women be pastors? All right? And I think it's unfortunate that that's the question that takes up so much airtime because that question is actually not related or not directly connected to a lot of these uh, uh, passages in the Bible for a few reasons. Okay? I, I, I think many, people, many Christians, they, they say something like, you know, there's no record of women in the Bible being pastors, and so therefore, so women did all these other things, but there were no women pastors, so therefore women today can't be pastors. But I think this argument fails to account for a few things, okay? First of all, the early church doesn't even recognize any male pastors. Okay, the term pastor is not even a title in the New Testament. The early church didn't have pastors. The word pastor as a noun appears one time in the whole New Testament, and it's arguably should be translated shepherd instead of pastor. And so the, this, this modern notion of a pastor, it wasn't even a thing in the New Testament where you gather once a week and then one person stands up and everyone's sitting down and looking at the sky and this person gives a half hour message. This wasn't even a thing in the New Testament, in the early church. All right, so, and that brings us to our second point, which is the early church, especially in the first few decades, was titleless. Many of the churches in the New Testament were titleless, meaning a lot of people, they didn't have official titles. It wasn't like people appointed so-and-so, and now from here on you address this person is a reverend, and this person is a bishop, and this person is a priest. They didn't have those structures early on. There were certainly leaders, but these leaders were serving more at an organic level, and they went by 
uh, titles that related to their role, like this was a servant, and this was a minister, and this was an apostle, and this is an elder. And these terms were often quite fluid. They use a lot of these terms interchangeably just to show that this person was something worth, worthy of respect. This person was someone who labored very hard, worked very hard, made a lot of sacrifice, hosted a church in their home. And so these were just, it's kind of like, you know, if I were to call someone a stakeholder today, all right? So if, some, if, if someone is a stakeholder today, it doesn't mean they write stakeholder on their resume. It's not like when, you give them, when they give you their business card, the business card says Larry Lynn stakeholder. Okay, that's not a title. Stakeholder is just a, a, uh, a, a role, I get, or like a, it shows the job they do, the role they play. And that's how a lot of these terms were in, in the New Testament, that people had these role names to illustrate what kind of roles they had. You know, Linda Belleville, she's a uh, New Testament theologian. She wrote of the first century church, with few exceptions, believers assumed the ministry role in the church not because they were appointed, nor because they had received professional training, but because they possessed the appropriate gifts to handle the task. So this was the culture in the early church, is that there often wasn't a formal process to install people. It was just that people did ministry with one another. People lived lives with one another. They preached the gospel. They did evangelism. They built relationships. They corrected false teaching. They hosted gathering in their homes gatherings in their homes, and as they did that, they came to function organically as leaders without often official titles. It was later on, you sort of see this towards the end of Paul's letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, but you see this uh, in a lot of the early church fathers' writings by the end of the first century, the start of the second century, and definitely by the time Christianity was legalized in the Roman Empire in the fourth century, that's when you see a lot of formalities come about and people started to have a more formal process by which you could become leaders. And that's also when the church started to actively prevent women from serving in a lot of these church office positions. So anyways, here's the third point, okay, I wanna bring up. Uh, so number one, the early church didn't have male pastors. Number two, the early church was titleless. Here's the third point. The early church was very diverse. Not every church was the same. What's interesting when you read about a lot of these churches is the church in Rome and the church in Philippi both had a very large number of female leaders. But on the other hand, it seems like there are a few churches where Paul even discourages women from ministering in certain ways. Like, for example, in 1 Timothy, Paul seems to discourage women from speaking or having authority over men in the city of Ephesus. And why is that? I think it's because every church has its own context. Every church has its own context. You know, um, I think Paul, I, I don't think these commands or these names or these roles, I don't think what Paul was doing was saying, hey, here is this principle that every church throughout history needs to abide by. I think what he's doing is he's just talking to a specific church, encouraging that church to do a specific thing. And so personally, I think the way, you know, when we think about uh, the modern church, I'm okay with churches today who have decided for themselves we will only install male pastors or male elders, okay? I have many Christian friends who are pastors or elders in churches like that. I used to be a pastor at a church like that. But I don't believe that the Bible requires every church to be like that. I think what the Bible does is, he, is it gives us a lot of flexibility, a lot of freedom 
to contextualize leadership structures to our own context. And so I believe, really, there are only two Bible passages that seem to limit the role of women in the church. One is in 1 Corinthians, one is in 1 Timothy. And I think what is going on is uh, you have to ask, why do these passages seem to limit the role of women? But why does it seem like Paul seems clearly to be okay with women exercising authority or teaching or something like that? In other contexts, the only explanation, the best possible explanation, is that all of these were contextual commands or contextual narratives, contextual descriptions. They're not meant to be applied to churches universally. Okay. You remember when I said um, the word pastor only shows up once in the whole New Testament? This is in Ephesians 4, 11, and uh, I'm going to read this because I think this is actually one of the passages that swayed me to the other side a few years back. This is Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, and I want to read this. It goes, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of, shepherd, uh, works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And again, this word pastors literally is the word poimen, which means shepherd. The spirit, what this passage is saying, is the spirit has granted different people with different gifts so that the church may be built up. And I think this is important to note. Nowhere in the New Testament does it seem to suggest that the spirit grants some gifts only to men and not to women, or only to women and not to men. The consistent pattern in the New Testament is that the Spirit grants gifts freely to everybody. Not everyone has all the gifts, but everyone has the opportunity or the availability of the gift, regardless of sex. And so, the Spirit gave certain the gift of apostleship and the gift of evangelism and so on to different people. And so when you look at this list and you ask what, which of these roles, which of these gifts can women have, I think it becomes pretty clear. Can women be apostles? Yes. We read recently that Junia was an apostle. Can women be prophets? Uh, yes. There are examples. Philip's daughters prophesied. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives instructions to how a woman should prophesy. All right, can women be evangelists? Recently, we talked about the Samaritan woman who evangelized her town, and after the resurrection, Mary evangelized about, uh, or shared about the resurrection with the disciples. So yes, I think women can be evangelists. Can women be pastors slash shepherds or teachers? That's what the Greek, the Greek makes it clear. It's a little bit confusing in English, but the Greek makes it clear this is one gift. The gift is, has two components, but the gift is pastoring slash teaching. And so that's the debated issue of today. That's the one that people debate. Can women be pastors slash teachers? But I want to encourage you to ask yourself, why would God give all of these gifts to women, the gifts of apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, but not teaching? Why, and, why, and, and how does the how do you make sense of this passage that doesn't make that distinction? The passage, the passage doesn't say, and God gave gifts to both men and women, including apostleship and prophecy and evangelism, but for pastoring and teaching, that's only for men. There's nothing like that there. And I want to suggest it's also more confusing because Paul elsewhere, he refers to apostleship and prophecy as the foundation of the church which makes it seem like apostleship and prophecy have more authority 
than pastoring and teaching. So here's, a, here's this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I think, I think this is important to bring out, all right? So Philippians 3, 19 through 20, this is what Paul writes. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief, chief cornerstone. So Paul's framework is this. The foundation of the church is built on the apostles and prophets. Right? He also says this elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, and miracles and gifts of healing and helping, guidance, different kinds of tongues. So he has an order of significance here, all right? So there is apostleship first, then prophecy, then all the rest. And so in Paul's framework, those who have the most authority, who are most prominent, most foundational to the church, are the apostles and prophets. So think about this. Why would God grant apostleship and prophecy, which have, an even, which have great authority to women, but not pastoring and teaching, which have less authority to women? I think it doesn't make sense. I think the, it makes sense that all the gifts of the Spirit have been given just as much to women than to men. And I believe that when, here's, the, here's where the rubber meets the road. I believe when we limit the roles of women in the church, then we lose out on the gifts that God has entrusted to the church. Ephesians 4.11 says that Jesus gave us all these gifts. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The way we make sure the body of Christ is being built up is by allowing all who are gifted to exercise those gifts. The way we make sure the body of Christ is built up is by allowing all who are gifted to exercise those gifts. Only then will we be able to live out Paul's spirit of collaboration. Throughout this passage that we've been reading about, Romans 16, Paul is talking and, and talking about how all these people that we want to be greeting, all, I mean the church in Rome should be greeting, all these people have contributed greatly. They've exercised their spiritual gifts in all these different ways to serve the church, including many women. And I think that's why ministry was so successful. That's why the body of Christ was being able to be built up so much because Paul and these church leaders, they laid the groundwork of, if you have a spiritual gift, we want to give you the authority, give you the room, we want to recognize you, we want to platform you, give you the ability to exercise those gifts and to minister in different ways so that the church may be built up. You know, for far too long, many women have felt stifled in the church. They have been told that they can't do this, or they can't do that, and not only are they suffering as a result, but I think the church overall suffers as a result. The church is stifled. The church is limited when certain people who are gifted in certain ways do not have the opportunity to exercise those gifts. I think when we do that, we shoot ourselves in the feet. We are limiting our ability to build ourselves up as a body of Christ. And so just a few quick things before we close. You know, if you're a leader in the church, whether you have the official title or not, you're just, whether you are just, uh, you have the official title or you're just an influential person, I want to encourage you to consider how you can empower those who have gifts to exercise those gifts. Even if they don't have the official titles, I believe we need to be actively helping people to see their potential, to identify their gifts, to find their gifts, and to have the platforms, to have the opportunities to exercise those gifts. And I think as leaders, we often need to be intentional about giving away opportunities, giving away power 
so that people can actually step into those roles instead of hoarding all of that power. And if you aren't an official leader in the church, if you aren't even an influencer in the church, if you don't have any power in the church, if you feel stifled, I want to encourage you to ask, how has God gifted you? How has God gifted you? God doesn't call anybody to be saved and just leaves them to be doing nothing. God saves people and then gives them gifts. So I want to encourage you to ask yourself, how has God gifted you? And where can you exercise those gifts in the church today? God longs for you to exercise those gifts for the building up of the church. He doesn't want you to just be a, a member where you just take and you just sit and you just loosely, you just get a participation trophy in heaven. God wants you to exercise your gifts in serving the church and building up the church. So I want to encourage you to discover your gift and grow in that gift and serve the church. You know, the heart of this sermon series, I believe, is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different things we want to recognize, but one of the hearts of this series is I want to help women in our church to see the role that God has given them in the church. And I want to help the men in our church to discover that for women as well and to foster that environment where women can serve in this church. Um, you know, I confess, you know, for a long time, I didn't see that. I didn't see the potential women to have in the church, and for a long time, a lot of women in churches that I served at uh, didn't have the opportunities to exercise their gifts. Uh, but I truly believe if we want to be a healthy church, if we want to be a church that grows, if we want to be a church that, um, that follow, fulfills this vision of Ephesians 4, then we need to be extending the opportunity to anybody and everybody. I want to close by reading Ephesians 4, 11 again. But I want to read all the way to 16 because I think this captures the vision of the church that I want our church to embody. Let's read this and meditate on this and, and let's ask how can this happen at Grace Life Church? Or let's read this together. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and the deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who was the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. That's my hope for our church, is that every part in our church, every member in our church, would participate and exercise he, his or her spiritual gifts in building up this church. Let's pray together as we close. Father God, we thank you so much for this time that you've given us and uh, this opportunity to just reflect on this early church and uh, just this amazing energy and this vitality and, and this culture of just every hand on deck and uh, everybody pitching in and everybody involved in and this, this feeling of whatever you need me to do, I'll do it, um, regardless of maybe um, 
how I would be perceived or how people may think of me or whether I'm falling into cultural norms. God, I pray that we would embody that heart as well today. I pray that uh, we would be able to help people to serve in the ways that God has called them to serve. And, um, and God, I recognize, you know, I don't have all the answers. I still have some things wrong, and I'm still a work in progress. And maybe 10 years from now, I'll look back and say I was wrong in this area or that area. So God, I pray that you would humble me. I pray that you humble, humble all of us and give us this heart that is willing to say whatever you want us to do, we want to do that, God. Even if it challenges us, even if it doesn't work within our expectations or our norms. And God, for those of us in this church who have often felt like there was no place for them to exercise their gifts, I pray that you give us those opportunities. God, it's just so sad to me that so many people, they, when they think about serving in the church, they think, oh, I can't teach or I can't play music, and so I'll just write names on name tags or I'll just hand out bulletins, and that's just, that's just how I'll serve the church. And God, you know, those are important roles, but I also pray that you open up our eyes to see how can we serve the church in accordance with the gifts that you've given to us. So that we can be all that the church was meant to be. We thank you so much for the gift of Jesus and his example for us as well. Thank you that he is the chief cornerstone and that we all rely and trust on him. We pray this in Jesus' name.